The text for the sermon is the passage we read together from the book of Esther, Esther chapter 2. After the sermon, let us sing together from Psalm 25, the second stanza. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's been a few months since I've been in Alora, but if your memory is really good, you might recall that when I was here back in May, I preached on Esther chapter 1. Now it may be taxing your memory to kind of assume that you remember the general context of the book of Esther, so again, just to get our mind into that whole time period, it's good to also you kind of repeat, you know, that the book of Esther takes us back some 2,500 years, about 480 B.C., around that time period. That's when a king by the name of Ahasuerus reigned over, you could say, the biggest empire that the world had seen up to that point. Kind of started today what we call Pakistan with the Indus River, all the way went to Egypt and also went so far as, as to the ex- extent of what today is called the country of Turkey. Of course, you will recall the general drift of the opening chapter where King Ahasuerus had kind of established his reign and then he had a big party. At the end of the party, he called for the queen to come and dance before the crowd. But she refused. Vashti refused to prance before a crowd of by then thoroughly intoxicated men. Now, it's interesting, of course, in the first chapter, you have no mention of the name of God at all. Now, when you come to the second chapter, it doesn't get any better in that respect. You still have no mention of the name of God. You won't actually find it throughout the whole book of Esther. But we do have mention of the people of God, of the Jews. So, Our focus begins also to narrow not just the general situation of an empire long ago, but we're touching on God's people, so we're touching on the things pertaining to God. So we have a world of long ago, we mentioned no mention of God, and still, of course, the big question is, but how does this particular book, how does also this chapter help us understand the grand story of salvation in our Savior Jesus Christ. Because all scripture has to come down to that in one way or the other. How, how does this chapter also communicate to us the gospel message? Well, we find our way when we remind ourselves that there actually is a very important point of contact between us today and the events described in our text that may seem kind of a far stretch. How can there be a point of context? Different time, different culture. But the point of context can be brought down to one word, namely the word exile. That's where we are kind of in the time period of Israel's history. And we know, of course, that, that things had begun to, begin to turn more favorable for the people of Israel after the exile about 586 B.C. Then King Cyrus had given permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and Judea, but really only a very small number had actually taken up that offer, maybe about 42,000, and begun to reestablish life in Jerusalem and Judea. But the vast majority of the Jews stayed put wherever they had ended up. At that point, their lives had become quite settled 
in their new environment. And that also was quite possible, you know, because the, the Persian kings who had superseded and overpowered the Babylonian rulers, they, they really tried to promote what today we would call multiculturalism. And they, they wanted to give room for all the different religions, so the Jewish people did not have a difficult time if they wanted to stay where they were. But the reality is, though, that even though it was possible to return, most had not, those who stayed behind, they continued in that respect to live in kind of a state of exile because they were not back in the promised land. And so if you're not in your own land, but you're always kind of a stranger, a sojourner, you have to kind of fit into this framework of a multicultural society. And you see, this also describes our situation as New Testament church. Think of how the Apostle Peter addressed his readers in his first letter, that they were the exiles, the strangers. Now, of course, there's somewhat different here that the Old Testament people could think, well, if I want to, I can go back to the promised land, and I can even live there. As, as New Testament church, we don't have that option. For us to go to Israel doesn't accomplish anything. No, because we are traveling on the way to the promised land. We are looking forward to the new heaven and new earth. In that way, yes, we're an exile generation, but we're also kind of like the wilderness generation. We're traveling on the way to the land that the Lord has prepared for us. But still, if we think in terms of exile, we will see in our text for this afternoon both an example and an encouragement. And therefore, I proclaim to you this afternoon, Esther's rise to queen and Mordecai's loyalty to the king are an example and encouragement for living as exiles. And we consider how they are an example and, secondly, an encouragement. Now, to see how they are an example, we must impress upon ourselves what it means to be an exile, a sojourner. In essence, in a situation like that, you are a guest wherever you are living. And that also means that you cannot expect the country you are living in to change everything to do it the way that you would like, the way that you were kind of used to back in your own country, you could say. It's even true for immigrants. When they immigrate, you know, you have to make adjustments to a new situation. But also as exiles, as Christians, we have to realize that. Also keep in mind that a person in exile is always recognizing that my stay, even though it may be an extended time, is actually fundamentally temporary. You're always, an exile is not counting this is where you stay forever. There's always the hope of returning to the home country. Now, as we said, you know, we can't go back to Israel. That, that's past. But our commonwealth is in heaven. We are longing for the heavenly country. And our ultimate hope is not on this earth. As Christians, we speak about being in the world, but we're not of the world. But in the meantime, of course, we must do our best to fit in. The Lord already instructed that first generation of exiles. You might recall words through the prophet Jeremiah, who had to address the exiles who had been taken away, and they were false prophets saying, oh, it won't last long. Don't even bother unpacking your bags because within two years you're going to be back in Jerusalem. And then, then through Jeremiah, the Lord said, no, 
count on being there for quite a while and therefore get settled, build houses, have families, and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Find it in Jeremiah 29. So, in exile, though there is that hope of, of a better homeland, still, in the meantime, as exiles, you don't sit around, you can say, moping and sitting on your duffel bags, thinking, oh, any moment, the bus is going to come and going to take us back. No, rather, you get busy, because you never know how long it is, but you also never forget where your home country is, like Daniel. He was busy in, in Babylon, but he always thought of Jerusalem, always prayed towards Jerusalem, always thought of his position as a child of God. Now, I mentioned the Apostle Peter. might be interesting for yourself just to even read through that letter as a whole later on because that kind of goes in that same direction. He put it this way. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak, evil, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. So there is the mindset. You're living in a country that's not really your own, and this is how you conduct yourself as people who have their mindset on their homeland in the heavens. Now we see this happening in our text. As, as the Jews, God's people, became caught up in the king's scheme to find a new queen, which involved bringing together all the beautiful girls in the kingdom. They received more time to make themselves even more beautiful. And then, it's kind of crash, but that's what it comes down to, they, they had to let the king try them out, and then to see which of these girls he liked the best. The king did not make any exceptions, saying, well, if you're that kind of people, you don't have to bother. No, beautiful girls all throughout the empire were to be gathered up to be presented to the king. Now, as we read this, then I would suspect that, that every parent is going to shudder at the thought of thinking, boy, I could lose my daughter in a situation like that. You think of the beautiful daughters that you have, as, and you think, oh, they might take her away, just like that. I have no say in the matter. And really only one has a chance of becoming a queen. And the rest, well, the rest, they would be kind of relegated to the harem of the king. Maybe in the future he wanted another girl to entertain him for a night, but most, of the, most likely she would just linger there for the rest of her life. Yes, he'd be provided for, but but kind of in a prison in a sense, because she could never enjoy normal life. She would never be able to enjoy having a husband and a family. So you think about that. That's terrible. That girls were just rounded up for their beauty, and they were to be given as to the king to try out. Only one would have success. Now, we don't know in the end how many girls were rounded up and how many were from among the Jews, but we do know about one Jewish young woman, we're told she had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Hadassah was her Jewish name. Esther was her Persian name. And we're told that she was an orphan who had been taken under the care of what really was her cousin, Mordecai. He had raised her as her own, 
So as, as the story unfolds, then we see that a very close bond had developed between these two. Mordecai treating her, we are told also, like his own daughter. He cared for her. But he could do nothing about the fact that the king wanted all the beautiful girls to come. No choice, could not prevent it. Now, you know, as we read our text and that we see that so often in, in Old Testament narratives, you read it and there is no value judgment on the process. We want to often wonder what, what, what actually was God thinking and what should we think about this? But, but no, the story is just told us. There, there's no indication that anyone tried to object to giving their daughters to the king. And of course, why would they even bother trying? You could say that was 480 BC. What the kings wanted, that's what the kings got. Power of the king was absolute. What is stressed is that upon Mordecai's instruction, Esther, she went also, as she was called to go with all the other beautiful girls, and Esther did not reveal her nationality. Twice, twice we're told that she did not do this, verse 10, verse 20. Now, we're not told why he told her this. Again, it's a fact. It's just passed on to us. There's no indication that she had to hide that because the king might be very harsh towards her because she was a Jew. Of course, it does become significant as the story unfolds further when we later on, you know, read about Haman plotting against Mordecai and the Jews. He had no clue that this would also affect the future queen at this point, Esther. He did not know the connection between Mordecai and Esther, didn't know that she was of the Jewish people. But at this point, it's stressed, don't bring it out, Esther. Just don't talk about that. But yet, as we reflect on the way the story unfolds, you know, we, we do see Esther's conduct as an example of what Peter would write about so 500 years later. So we again mentioned Peter, that exile setting. And he gave instruction, you know, in 1 Peter chapter 3, for women whose husbands did not become believers. That happened in the early church. The gospel was proclaimed. Sometimes only one of the, the spouses followed the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul writes about that too in 1 Corinthians 7. And you will recall that when Peter gave advice on how the women should handle that situation, then he said, you should be subject to your own husbands. And then he goes on, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And we should also take note of what follows then from Peter's advice. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And that's 1 Peter 3, first six verses. Now note well, brothers and sisters, while we never read of any explicit reference to Esther's faith, we do see in her conduct 
an example of what Peter then also described as holy women. You might think, well, she, she had no choice. You know, she was forced to enter basically a beauty contest. And she had to also spend time on the external. She was given all the cosmetics, the oils, and all the beautification treatments as the other young women. But, you know, you could notice as the account unfolds, then we learn that her true beauty was that she had, you could say, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That she was submissive in the whole process. Of course, we recognize she really had nothing to say, but we see that she, could say, makes the best of the situation, and she comes across with a gentle and quiet spirit and, and stresses those things. Because, as the passage kind of continues, what, what comes across as winning the day was that inner beauty. But already, we are told, had won the heart of the eunuch in charge of the young women. We read in verse 9 how she won his favor. And he provided her with the best cosmetics, foods, and attendance. And then we read in, in verse 15 how she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Notice that. That she was winning favor. So that is based on a person's character. Beautiful person, as soon as you find out their character is ugly, ah, you don't have anybody's favor. But, but an inner beauty that comes out, along with the outer beauty for Esther, well, these things were influencing, first of all, the eunuch in charge of the harem, but all who saw her were won over by her character. And it appears that also this won the favor of the king. For just think, you know, we don't even know how many women were gathered, but so many beautiful women had come to him he probably, after a while, didn't know what beauty looked like anymore because he saw one beauty after another. But in one situation, something made Esther stand out. For we are told that she won grace and favor in the king's sight more than all the other virgins, and she was crowned queen. Now, as we talk about this, of course, we realize that this particular picture of womanhood may not sit so well in our times. You know, there seems to be actually little appreciation in our age for a quiet and gentle spirit in women. But then again, lest only the sisters are feeling kind of singled out, by comparison, there is not too much appreciation either for Christ-like men as they seek to love sacrificially and lead their wives there is not too much appreciation for those men and women who make it a point to show the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, if you think of what is kind of seen as a virtue in our age, it almost seems, well, you kind of have to be assertive, even aggressive. You have to... You have to stand up for yourself, whether you're a man or a woman, especially a woman, you've got to stand up for yourself. Kind of in-your-face activism that confronts us day by day. Now, I mention this to, just to show that there are implications for the behavior of men as we live in exile to, to show our commonwealth is in heaven. 
but of course we recognize the text is focusing here on the conduct of holy women. We see that Esther made the best of her situation. And upon the advice of Mordecai, she had not put forward her background. Her greatest beauty was her character, doing the best under the circumstances in which she found herself. And that's really fitting conduct for those in exile so as not to give unnecessary offense, just like Peter said too. Don't give unnecessary offense. And we see the same when we think about what we are told about Mordecai. You know, we are told that, that he uncovered a plot to kill the king. He reported it to Esther, who then passed it on to the king. Again, we see that, that kind of conduct that also the Apostle Peter writes about when he said, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Almost like a whole political platform there, how as Christians we should live in this world. Well, that, that kind of describes Mordecai. He showed this kind of respectful behavior. He sought the good of the emperor of his day, of King Ahasuerus. And of course, you know, we kind of know the general drift of the overall story, and the importance of this will come out later, because you know that Haman is going to come into the picture, and he's saying, well, there is a people in your midst, because he was upset about Mordecai, who are actually a threat to you, king. They always want to cause you trouble. It wasn't true at all. He was a Jew, Mordecai. He had shown he had the best interest of his king in mind, even though he was an exile. It wasn't his homeland that was back with God's people. And so when we look then at the events described in our text, we have examples of how as Christians, exiles in the world, it is possible to function in this world, even though, you know, our thoughts, you could say, are always out of this world. They're always looking ahead to the new heaven and new earth. More examples, of course, of people who sought to live this way as exiles. You could mention Joseph in Egypt. He did his best in the situation where he found himself. We mentioned Daniel earlier already. Daniel gave himself to be a faithful servant of King Nebuchadnezzar, who had caused all that misery to come upon the people of Israel. You think of Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer to the king, which wasn't just the position of being a butler, but that would also be a very key advisor. In the New Testament, we learn of Christians who even were part of the household of Caesar. But as Christians, we never adapt or adopt the ways of the world. Rather, we always keep in mind the ways of the kingdom of God as we live in this world. It won't always be possible to explain to everyone who exactly we are as God's people. You know, I suspect that many of the brothers who are in the trades when they are quoting on a job don't 
speak, especially if it's a new person they're interacting with, the first thing is not that they say, well, I'm a Christian. Now, people who deal with them repeatedly will get to know that, but that's not the first thing you say when you make a quote, I am a Christian. In our other work, that's not the first thing we say necessarily. But, of course, in due time it will come out. But it isn't the first thing you put on the table, but by your conduct. Just like those Christian wives were exhorted, just live in a godly way, and who knows what will come from it. That's our focus. Live as a godly way, in a godly way, and let our deeds speak louder than words. And so also then, if we do it that way, even though people might not at first know who we are as God's children, it will come out eventually, but when accusations would ever arise, they can never say anything against us that has any substance because we have sought to walk in the way of the Lord. And then our actions, they will indeed vindicate us, but also they will perhaps open the door for conversation, for discussion about being children of God. And so by now then it should be evident how Esther's rise to queen and Mordecai's loyalty to the king serve as an example for exile-style living. Many references were made to 1 Peter. It's very helpful there. said that they are also an encouragement. And that's our second point. Now, to see how we are encouraged, we must keep in mind the the overall flow of the book of Esther. For as the the story unfolds, the two cousins, but in that kind of father-daughter relationship, living as exiles, we know that they end up in a position where they serve the cause of God's plan of salvation. You know, in the next chapter, we're going to find that plot to destroy the Jews, which, you know, in the end, was nothing but an effort by the evil one to abort the promised seed from coming into the world. Haman may not have realized that, and others might not have realized it, but that was going on. Any attack on God's people is always, in the end, an attack on God's promise to keep him from fulfilling the promise to bring forth a Savior. That's why... So at the Old Testament, you see so many attacks on Israel when the Pharaoh tried to drown all the boys in the Red Sea. Satan at work. He wanted to stop the promise from coming to reality. But the point to note here is that by simply living faithfully as exiles in the circumstances in which they found themselves, these two people here also found themselves as servants in God's hand in the end, to keep the line open toward Bethlehem. Never spell out in so many words, but if we know the big picture, that's what's going on. There's no indication even that Esther and Mordecai were thinking in these terms, or that they were plotting, you could say, to infiltrate the king's palace and to gain his favor. At this point in the book, in the story, no one knew what was coming down the line. They were simply living faithfully. And by doing so, in the end, they would serve God's great purpose. You see, and that encourages us also, brothers and sisters, in our time of exile. We don't know what will come of it as we seek to live faithfully. We don't know how our obedience to the ways of the Lord will advance the kingdom of God. But what we see to encourage us is that God is pleased to use the simple obedience of his children 
in the moments in which they find themselves to further his purpose. It's not dependent upon us anticipating what is going to happen next. It's not upon us, dependent upon us to, to plot and scheme. If we do this, will we bring the kingdom further? No. You see, the only one plotting and planning is God. We, we don't even know all the things going on behind the scenes, and we don't have to know that either. We simply know God is faithful, and he is powerful, and he is working out his purpose. And we simply have to be faithful, trusting him, walking in his ways. Now, we shouldn't take this to mean that by being faithful in our time of exile, we will end up playing as significant a role as Esther and Mordecai did. Keep in mind, there's no indication in our text at this point that they were thinking of what's coming down the road and how we can save the people of God. That just happened. But when situations happen, if our conduct has been honorable, even also when people speak against us, they they have no grounds for their accusation, we can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so we are encouraged in that we are prepared for such occasions simply by living faithfully. Don't try to figure everything out, how we can outsmart the enemy. If you want to outsmart the enemy, simply live in the ways of the Lord. Walk in the ways of the Spirit. And God will use that in His way, in His time. And so we have in our chapter then an example of faithful exile living. For yes, do keep in mind, we are exiles, and we will be until our Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory, and then we enter the eternal promised land. And our lifestyle as exiles will be quite a contrast to that of the world. At the same time, there's also an encouragement. As was mentioned, don't expect to be so important and dramatic and play such a dramatic role as was played by Esther and Mordecai. Still we are encouraged, be it just limiting ourselves to the context of the text, you could say to the sisters, to live as godly women, known for their godly character and conduct, or to live as loyal subjects of our country, seeking its peace and well-being. It's winsome. It brings glory to God. It is used by God to accomplish his purpose. And so, when at times you wonder about the purpose of living in exile, of the how and the why, think of Esther and Mordecai. Amen.